A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. Tonight I am joined by uh, two friends, Amy and Jeff, who um, we've just recently met actually through A Thoughtful Faith, and um, I became acquainted with their story a little bit through through communicating with them, and I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have tonight. Amy works at a university, and she does behavior modification therapy with the students at the university. And um, Jeff works for Adobe, and they've been married for 20 years. They have a daughter and um, lifetime members of the church. And Amy and Jeff have a very unique situation where they've encountered some um, trials and some difficulties that um, have been struggles for years. And um, as a result of these issues, they've they've got quite a unique perspective on um, activity in the church, uh, how a certain group of people are affected, and how the church becomes difficult, not for reasons of faith crisis or sin, but just because culturally they f- and socially they encounter real difficulties fitting in and, and being apart. And so tonight we're really going to focus on that aspect of membership in the church and how certain people really struggle and how much of an issue it becomes when people feel as though they don't belong culturally and socially to the church. But within the context of their own story and their own um, struggles. And uh, so anyway, let's just start. Welcome, first of all, to both of you. Thank you. (laughs) And actually, thanks for letting me come into your home. So let's just start with from the beginning. Uh, I kind of want to know right off the bat, what are some, where, what were you guys like as youth in the church? What were your families like? And, um, you know, how were you, how did you fit in as, as young people? And Amy, we'll start with you and then Jeff, you can tell your okay. story. Um, I grew up in Colorado and come from a very active family. I have two brothers and two sisters. And where I grew up, there was very few Mormons there. So I was one of, I think, five or six in my graduating class. So very few members of the church, but a lot of really good people. And so growing up was nothing like it is now. We live in Utah now, and so it's a little bit different. Obviously, our daughter has had some different experience you know, growing up because of where we live now. But when I grew up, there was hardly any members. Like I said, we are very true believing Mormons. I grew up that way. My parents were very active. They taught us to be very active. Um, you know, my mom was in young women's stake leadership, Relief Society stake leadership. My dad was a bishop, a stake president. Um, he was also a patriarch. Um, and so growing up in Colorado, I really enjoyed my youth. I thought the church, you know, was everything to me. Um, but my parents were really good about letting us make our own decisions. They weren't, you know, like you have to be this way and you have to go to church. It was always a desire to want to go to church. It was never forced upon us. Um, and there was times where I didn't go because I was in a tennis match or in a volleyball tournament. We played, come from a long line of sports in our family. So um, there was times where, you know, I didn't go and they they would go and I would go to my sports events and they were okay with that. So, um but I had a really good childhood. I think it was very much 
like it is with a lot of Mormons. It's like you follow a certain path and you do these certain things. When I got to, you know, get ready to go to college, it was like you go to BYU. I didn't really apply to anywhere else. It was like, that's where you're going to go. Luckily, I got in and um, it worked out, but I didn't even apply to anywhere else. So, Amy, you talk a little bit about um, what your testimony was actively and from a personal perspective. Did you actively seek a testimony in the church? Were you a spiritual person? Yes. Um, like I said, my parents were very active, but I think personally, I didn't really have a testimony that let, you know, that was, that I leaned on them. I think as a youth, I, you know, I think a lot of youth, they just don't really think about it that much. You know, when they get to be mission age or go to college, that's when they start gaining it. I did that probably when I was started in junior high, high school. It became very important to me to figure out, you know, what this church is all about and do I really have a testimony. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do that, but maybe for me, it's I, I started to figure out those things probably at an earlier age than most people, I think, and um, Did spent you? a lot of time, you know, reading my scriptures and, you know, going to seminary. I always went to seminary. We did it in the early morning and never missed. And, um, you know, young women's, all that was very active and um, did a lot of things on my own. And even though my parents were in high callings and true believing members and wanted us to be, I didn't really rely on them. So, okay. Did you ever have any kind of an experience where you prayed to get an answer or any spiritual, or did it just always feel right? And you were just always involved? Yeah, it just always felt right. And I know a lot of people have a specific experience that they can remember in their life where they're like, this is true. And to me, it was just always, it just felt good. It, um, seemed like the right thing. Um, it made sense to me. So, it never was anything that I felt like I had to pray and say, is this true? It just seemed like it was. Right. So. Jeff, what was, you know, what was your experience like as a young person? And in a lot of ways, I think it was similar to Amy's. I was the oldest of six kids. I guess I still am the oldest of six kids. <laughs> None of us are kids anymore. But um, I you know, grew up in the Chicago area, just outside of Chicago. Uh, same kind of situation where very much in the minority. We had, I think my high school was over 4,000 students, and we had about 20, 25 members of the church. And we did early morning seminary in high school and all carpooled together, the Mormon kids and everything. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, always active our whole life, very, very active family. Uh, my dad was maybe on the strict side of following the rules, uh, never missing anything, obeying everything. Um, I remember, I mean, the church really was, it was everything, especially from a young age. It was your social circle. It was, <laughs> it defined me completely. It was what made me unique with uh, people at school that I interacted with. Most of my best friends probably till high school-ish, we're all members of the church because that's who we associated with. Um, my parents weren't really leadership people in the church. I don't think my dad, I don't know that remember him being in any positions like that. But uh, I always just viewed everybody in our ward and our everybody I grew up with was just perfect families, you know. I mean, everybody, nobody had any problems. Uh, everybody even always told us what a perfect family we had. And that was, I guess, a little curious for me since I knew it was really happening at home. Um, and it was always an odd thing for me to, to try to figure out how we were perfect when it sure didn't feel perfect. Uh, but everybody always reinforced that and said how perfect our family was. Let me ask a little bit. I mean, just to kind of clarify, when sure. you say abuse, I mean, are you how how much abuse was it? You weren't aware of it, but you're looking back on it, and it's abusive. Well, spanking was a little more normal. Uh, what I'd say is it was beyond spanking. It was more like uh, boards. I mean, you never punch you in the face, but it was a lot of hitting type right. punishment. Um, okay. A lot of fear, extreme criticism, extreme emotional abuse. These are, I think, when you're younger, things you don't grasp. 
Uh, I think once I left home and experienced Amy's family, I really started to realize how bad it was. Um, but yeah, it was like Saturdays, we'd put an eight hour shift in as kids, at least working on whatever workaholic project he had finishing our basement. And there would be a two by two laying by the wall where if anybody acted up, (laughs) just a lot of heavy control, um, that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, very, very critical, not, uh, not a lot of love, I would say at all. My mom was very loving, uh, very great person, but you know, there was not a lot of standing up against the patriarch, especially back. I think, I think maybe it's gotten a little bit better, but back then I don't think as a mother of six kids without a career that there was a lot of standing up you could do to the to the patriarch of the home. The, the, he used to always say he was the, the, this wasn't a democracy. It was a dictatorship and he was the dictator. Okay. <laughs> so he was direct. <laughs> he, he was direct, but he followed the rules. Um, and I always guess I would have considered him to be a righteous person because he did outwardly everything you were supposed to do. Um, you know, I don't think I ever heard him say a swear word or see a rated R movie or anything like that, you know? And so rules were a huge thing for him. But as I got older, I guess the love piece was that that was all my mom. <laughs> right. So within that um, situation, did you actively seek a testimony of the church? What was your spiritual life like? Yeah, I, um, I don't remember caring about anything like that when I was younger, younger. I think, like Amy, maybe when I was, when the reality of a mission started setting in, I think, I think when I was younger, I just assumed this is right. And one thing that they really pounded in and that really sunk in for me was this concept by the, by their fruits, ye shall know them. And I would see all these wonderful members of the families that just had no problems. And, and some of my friends who weren't Mormon, they're, they're, you know, their parents smoked, ooh, you know, drank, all these things that I thought, my gosh, these are just horrible things. And, and there were all these outward signs that, to me that showed all the problems that existed in families that weren't part of my church. Whereas the families in my church, I remember the one family that drank Diet Coke and everybody thought, oh my gosh, they drink Diet Coke. They're Jack Mormons, we would call them. You know, so to, to me, everybody just followed all the rules. Everybody was just perfect. And I'm like, this is the true church. That was one of the things that made me just know that this was the right place. Um, as I got, you know, I did seminary. I was 100% a tender. I, I've never drank in my life, never broken the word of wisdom, never done anything like that. And that just because I, I felt like it was a badge of honor for me. I felt good. It was what I felt good about. It made me feel like I was special and different. And friends, as I got into high school and those friends, you know, they, they knew I was the Mormon kid and... They stood up for me, the friends that I did have. I didn't have any Mormon friends once I got into high school. But, you know, they they valued that in me, and it just made me feel good. When I got closer to my mission, I finally felt like I've got to know for myself. I can't can't do this (laughs) and just be saying I think this is right. So I spent a lot of time, and I'd always read the scriptures growing up. You know, a lot of that was driven by seminary. And I'd had good experiences, you know, good feelings. But I I did finally ask and go through that whole process. And I I remember having a powerful experience one time after reading, finishing the whole thing and reading the promise and praying and feeling that what I consider to be a a spiritual answer is that it was true. So I definitely remember that. And throughout my mission, I had just a ton of powerful experiences that reinforced that this was definitely the truth. And so, yeah, I'd say I had a, I've had a really strong testimony of those things. Awesome. So let's talk about, um, you meet, right. And you, I assume you get married in the temple. Yeah. Yes. And thus begins, um, kind of a, a new life of dealing with some really hard trials. So let's start there. One thing that was kind of interesting is right after, you know, talking about this abuse and, and all, my, all those experiences, um, getting married, one thing that was kind of a interesting thing, and maybe it was before even that, was I think once we became adults, we're considered adults by the wards that we came from, at least me, all of a sudden I got let in on the fact that so-and-so was actually excommunicated and these people... 
all these problems. And I was like, what? It was just such a shocker. And it, it really kind of hit me as thinking, my gosh, I had this impression that there was just no problems. Everything was perfect in these families. Um, and then all of a sudden, it was a reality dose. And I remember thinking, wow, they really kept the you know shade over my eyes or whatever. And, and, and I, I do think that's one thing I've really thought a lot about, especially recently, is what a disservice we do to our kids by overplaying the perfection hand in the church. We're seeking perfection, but we don't have to be there right now. And yet I almost feel like there's an expectation that you're already there. And... And don't wreck it. And don't yeah yeah and and don't don't let on that there's any problems that you have. But anyway, that was we can talk more about that later. But my mom actually died the week we got engaged. Um, she'd had cancer for a while. We thought she was going to last quite a bit more. They'd given her a few months more. Thought she'd last to the wedding, but it, she she passed away that same period of time. And so going into marriage, we maybe in a perfect world we would have waited till I'd gone through the grief process a little more, but it was a perfect distraction yeah. <laughs> to focus on something happy and positive. And, uh, we, yeah, I think we thought it would be a, you know, it was kind of appropriate. It's like this horrible, sad thing has happened, but there's this great, happy thing. And we, we felt like maybe it would replace some of the sadness, which naive. was kind of ridiculous and it didn't, but, um, yeah. for some reason in our mind, it seemed like a good thing to do and appropriate and normal. You know, and we were in the same, it was right off my mission, you know, that you, I remember my mission president sitting us down as we were leaving saying, okay, your goal should be to be married within six months. And, uh, that was, he wanted us to, we all wrote that down as a goal to be married within six months of getting home. And I, I got home in May and we were married. I didn't make six months, but I beat a year. We got married. I, I met Amy in the fall and we were married it was a little longer than a lot of people, but eight months later. Um, but, you know, we I only completed a year, same kind of story. She was getting close to being done. We had no money. I, I had no money at all. I'd never owned a car. <laughs> and then my mom had just died. So we, we get married, and obviously it was a momentary honeymoon high, and then just the reality of that sadness. I had to drop out of school. I, I couldn't focus on my classes. And, you know, it was kind of went through some depression during then and and we just as we sat talking about having kids which you know you got about a three-month window before the pressure starts <laughs> right <laughs> um, we, we decided to actually wait um we're like we need to a i need to feel stable again i need to get um f- get past this grief of losing my mom because she was the closest person in my life by far i mean i really was close to her and um I think then we also were both pretty sensitive to our financial situation. I mean, we were completely broke, living in a dumpy basement studio. And so, you know, looking at our lives in general, we, we, we decided we were going to wait for a few years uh, and get, get stable, know ourselves personally and each other, get a better relationship. Our relationship struggled that first year because she didn't know how to deal with somebody going through the stages of grief. I mean, everything's just supposed to be perfect and happy because when you get married, it's happily ever after. Right. And it certainly wasn't uh, for us. It was really rough that first year. Um, Can I ask, how did your relationship with the church interact? Um, you know, I mean, did you feel really strong? Was Were you using your faith to confront these issues or... Was were the problems and the trials a little bit bigger than you had been prepared spiritually? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. As a question. I remember, and and anybody who's heard was Eldon that podcast that Eldon did on Mormon stories. I I really related to the experience that he had a lot, but I remember um, extreme support when it when she died. Um, just. You know, be meals and caring and notes and love and fasting for us and the whole bit. But within it's it's a month or two, everybody's kind of past it, and you're also supposed to be done with that because don't you believe in the plan of salvation? Well, don't aren't you grateful that you're going to see her again? No, I'm not grateful. I'm only twenty. She's never going to know my children. I'm not going to get. To experience anything with her, so great, I'll see her again. But 
I've lost something major here, and it's not. It doesn't feel any better. Maybe it feels a little better to know that I'll see her again versus never. Certainly, that feels better. But there, you become. It transitions into almost this. Okay, you've had your your time. Be done with it now. You should be happy. You shouldn't continue to be sad. Do you feel like that has something to do with our perspectives on? How, like perfection and how we're yeah. supposed to look and what the gospel is supposed to give us. Yes. And it's an, it's an expression, I think, in many people's eyes of a lack of faith and a lack of belief. If you're a true believer in the plan of salvation, then you will take solace and comfort in knowing you'll see him again and that it's also God's plan. And so you, you need to pray and you'll feel better if you just pray. That's people yeah. saying that who have never been through this before because it's a bunch of baloney. And I do think everybody feels like as long as you pray and read your scriptures and serve others, everything will work out, you know, and you'll get over your grief and things will move on. The atonement and I do will, think yeah. that that helps. Absolutely. But yeah. I think that's not the end all. There's oh. a lot more to that. Or the, the atonement. The atonement's supposed to take all of our grief and our pain away. So if you aren't getting your grief and pain away, again, it's your fault. You aren't, you're not understanding the atonement enough. You're not living righteously enough. You're not praying hard enough. So it's all this onus on you to do things that actually aren't helping. They're putting way more, they put way more pressure on me to feel better and made me feel guilty and bad about myself that I wasn't feeling better. When, you know, getting angry is a key stage of grief, being mad, maybe even being mad at God. That, that this happened. I mean, it's not his fault or anything, but those are normal things. And if you don't go through that, you don't go through, you don't recover. At the time, did you internalize it just as you, you should, you were inadequate? Or did you kind of have a perspective that maybe people weren't being as compassionate or being as understanding as they should? Did you look at it as your own fault? Or did you could you kind of see that maybe it was something bigger than that? Uh, I could... I could um, intellectually say this is their, them, l- lack of compassion, or they just don't get it. But I certainly internally didn't feel that way. The feeling okay. was yeah. feelings of inadequacy, of shame, and that I continue to feel sad, of lack of permission to be able to be sad, that kind of a thing. And right. But I also think I, I just feel like people, they love to help for a period of time, but it's, <laughs> I don't know how to say this. If it's uncomfortable, if I found that if people don't know how to sucker the needy, kind of those kind of things, they just completely disengage. There's nothing versus trying just to talk. It's, you don't want to deal with those uncomfortable things. Uh, I've, I haven't met very many people that I don't, can't think of hardly anybody that's reached out aside from, bringing the meals in that rush, rush thing in, that, in the crisis moment. Once that is passed, it, it's kind of like, you it's know, over. we don't want to do, deal with this. Amy, what was your perspective during this time? What were you experiencing? I was just trying to help him. You know, he's the type of person that he'll just hold it in and hold it in and hold it in. And then all of a sudden, it'll, it'll just be like a, a meltdown. And I think because he just felt like that's what you should do is you hold it in and you just keep doing what you're doing and living your life. And then at some point you just can't do that anymore when you experience a loss like that. So I would try to encourage him to talk about it, cry when you need to. I think men are taught you don't really cry or show your emotions. So I don't think he's different than most um males who think that you just don't do that and um i think that kind of lengthened the grief process because he wouldn't let himself grieve appropriately he just tried to move on you know because i think everybody else was moving on and i think um the mormon culture sometimes makes you feel like you need to move on and I think some people can do it easier than others, but I think everybody needs to grieve through that. And so I was just trying to help him along, and that's why the first, you know, 
first year for sure was really hard for us. So the first couple of years, yeah. I mean, we almost got divorced for the first couple of years because it was just so hard. hard. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about how then you transition out of those problems. What, you know, kind of takes you into the next stage where you start thinking about children? Yeah, well, we were married for about four years before we started thinking about having children. And it was, I think we used the excuse of we don't have any money, your mom's passed away, you're dealing with a lot of things. But for me, I just didn't want to have kids right away. And I felt a tremendous pressure to have kids right away, but I just didn't want to because I was scared. I really wanted to work and have some kind of a career. And, you know, I think for the first year or two, that's acceptable. But then after that, it's not really acceptable. It's you're being selfish. You know, that's what you're here for. When we were in a BYU student ward. Yeah, we were in a BYU student ward at that point. And, um, but I think any, I don't think that really made that much of a difference. I think anywhere you'd go, if you were in a church ward, and you are newly married, I mean, people don't usually wait four plus years to start trying to have children. So, Do you have any experiences, comments that were made, or, you know, uncomfortable situations that you can talk about? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There is one. She doesn't remember it as well as me. I guess I got so fired up about it. So we, I think it had been three years or something that we'd been married, and we actually finally saved up a little money and bought a townhouse I mean it wasn't anything grand but we were in a BYU student ward and there was a most people at that age or stage are still in apartments you know grody apartments that we all we'd lived in those our fair share for sure and she had a but but that was probably one of the nicer places that people lived in because we actually owned it and it was a anyway um we she had her visiting teachers come over and the lady starts saying to her how she goes I hate when people who have who uh, choose not to have kids so that they can have nice places to live and nice stuff, and I I was in small place so I overheard the whole thing and she was just in tears afterwards and I called the relief study president I said that woman's never coming in our home again, but you know usually people extreme. weren't that direct. She yeah. was very direct. Um, she was very. I mean, there was a lot of other judgmental. things said. She wasn't very tactful at all. You know, other people were more like, hey, when are you having kids? Why are you waiting? You know, and we would always use it. Well, it's, you know, we're just trying to save up some more money. Oh, just just have faith. faith. Pay your tithing. It'll all work out. We should you shouldn't you should never uh, put finances or anything over over your mission of of having children. And a lot of the women didn't work. And Amy did work. Why shouldn't she? Especially then. And there was there was stuff about that. Yeah, she bore the brunt of this more than I did. So there's a lot of far. just little comments, you know, nothing where people came up and was like, "What are you doing?" But constant comments, constant little comments. So, Amy, what did what was your perspective of God at this time? Did you feel like these people represented God, or did you have a different understanding of God that you felt more secure in? Um, that's a good question. I think that I always felt comfortable with what I was doing and I always just looked at it, you know, they don't know my life. They don't know my intentions. They don't know my relationship with God. So it would make, would it make me feel bad? Yes, absolutely. I would feel bad a lot, but, um, I just always looked at it as they just don't understand they don't walk in my shoes and um i never thought it was appropriate way to treat somebody else but i think that's just what happens a lot of times so right so do you feel like at the time you went through any kind of an experience where you involved god in the process of deciding about children or did you just feel confident enough to make that decision on your own I just felt confident enough to make that decision on my own, and I definitely worried about that sometimes and would question, you know, should I be involving God more in this and asking him when I should start? But it just, 
it's kind of like everything else with the church. It felt good. It felt like the right path to me. I didn't ever have that nagging feeling like I should be doing something else and I'm on the wrong road. So it's, you know, and I was very prayerful. I've always have been. And so I felt like if it wasn't the right thing, I would feel off or I'd feel out of alignment. And I never did. So I felt comfortable with that. Okay. So, Jeff, where were you in that? Yeah. Um, so I, Amy, just on this, Amy's a, a very unique and incredible person with her self-confidence and her ability to know what's right for her and follow that path, regardless of what other people say and do. That's a unique thing that I don't think a lot of people have that ability. And that's something that's neat about her. I, um, For me, I remember... After about two year mark, where the I'd say pressure intensified extremely because we were we were beyond that little period of time when they can maybe give you that before you're starting to sin. But I started to feel like we are we're living incorrectly. We are not doing what God wants us to do. I felt guilty about it, but and for me it was kind of like what I can't force Amy and and intellectually I could say there's nothing wrong with this but I certainly inside felt like we're doing what we're doing is wrong we we should be trying we shouldn't be waiting and and uh so I I felt bad uh, about it a lot of times but it was like a feeling versus logic logic said this there's nothing wrong everybody's path can be different and there's no there's no problem with this but yet I would feel I would feel like there was a problem with it I feel like we're kicking against the pricks or whatever. <laughs> right. Did you have a preconceived idea? Like when you were growing up, did you think, oh, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have oh, yeah. 20 children and that this was somehow fighting that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Or Yeah, I felt like we're going against my patriarchal blessing. You know, it didn't say when, but it certainly said we'd have that I'd have many children. Both of ours do, actually, which is kind of odd. But... uh I just started to feel like we're just not, we're not fulfilling our purpose. Our purpose is being lost here and working and doing these other things. They're just not as important as our purpose, which is to have kids. But I I definitely went into it thinking we'd have, I don't know, four, four or five kids or something like that. Okay. That was the preconceived. I never thought that. No, you didn't. I know. What did you think, Amy? I thought two or three kids is what I always kind of, felt I didn't I grew up in a family of five I didn't like having that many kids I just thought it was too many and nothing against people who have a lot of kids I for me I was like I don't think I could be a good mom to that many kids because that's just not my personality so yeah okay. but Jeff really old, liked it he grew I was up. the oldest of six I loved I mean I I was I don't know it's like I was born half a woman or something I just <laughs> always I babysat which I don't know if it's a normal thing for guys and I like my youngest sister who was quite a bit she was eight when we got married but she had her crib in my room when i was in high school and i would get it up with her at night and i just loved the whole thing it's like i was half woman i don't know i was born to be a mom (laughs) i always loved that so i I thought yeah we'll have a lot of kids i mean that's what i always went in with right so you did eventually i guess four years in is that about we started trying four years in we started trying then it took another four and a half years to actually have our daughter and that was obviously a shock and not yes so let's talk about that yeah so you know so by the time we had our daughter it had been eight and a half years which is a really long time to have somebody be married and not have kids so I never had any health problems. Jeff no. has never had any health problems. Both of our families never had problems conceiving or having children. You know, a lot of fertile people all the way around. So it was a definite shock to us when we, we could We both thought we were being straight up punished, though. Yeah. Because we waited. This yeah. is what we get. You know? Yeah. So we Wait felt... a minute. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Let's <laughs> Let's talk about... I mean, not that I want to get so detailed, but sure. let's talk about what that was first like when you first started realizing that it wasn't going to happen right off the bat and that it wasn't, your expectations weren't being fulfilled immediately. You know, talk a little bit about that experience. I think it was just a lot of shame and like we felt like we were being punished. Yeah. I was just like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have 
worked. We should have just had more faith and, you know, our finances would have worked out. Um, regret. Regret. Just thinking we're being punished. And, yeah. you know. you so. so you were being punished by God. You felt oh, yeah. like he was... If we'd have followed the path, if we'd have done what we were supposed to do right off, we would have certainly Because growing up, you know, in young women's, they're just like, you get an education, you get married, you have multiply and replenish earth. I mean, that's what you do. And we had kind of postponed that multiply and replenish the earth a little bit. And that has been drilled into me, not just as a youth, but all through college, you know, once we were married in Release Society... All the time, in every lesson almost, you know, they mention it, not in every lesson, but in a lot of lessons they mention it, and um, so I just, when it didn't happen to us, and we couldn't find anything medically wrong with us, you know, we went through all the tests, they never have found anything wrong with either one of us, (laughs) which I think would have helped in the whole process. To have somebody say, this is wrong, and this is why you can't have kids. But to have nothing be wrong with me, sorry, and to have nothing be wrong with Jeff, it obviously still gets me emotional, it makes you feel like you're being punished because there's nothing medically wrong with why you shouldn't be having kids. Was What was the support like? What were your families like? What were your wards like? Nobody talked about it. No. At first, you know, everybody was excited that we started, and then they were asking, you know, and I think... Yeah, probably for the first year, they're asking, and, oh, this is great, but then after a while, nobody really asked, and I think everybody kind of went back to the, maybe assuming that we're not trying anymore, or, you know, and it's not like you feel comfortable to go and, hey, let me tell you what's going on with us and our whole fertility journey, you know. You don't want to go tell people that, and nobody's asking. So people, I think, just start to assume that maybe we weren't trying again. You know, I think it was just an uncomfortable situation. So again, it kind of goes back to like what Jeff said. I think when an uncomfortable situation happens, instead of saying something, people just choose to say nothing. Was there anybody that was sensitive? Like, did you have, like, um, a parent or a sibling or a friend that you could check in? Or was or was it just you two? I would say it was just us. Following your, she would have miscarriages. So after a while, she started having miscarriages so she could get pregnant and then would lose it. And pretty, your your family would be sensitive, like, in that moment when they found out. And their their reaction, though, was give her space. What space meant, like, I'm so sorry that happened, but a lot of times they would tell me that they were so sorry that happened to her, and we'll give her space, and then... And then they would never talk to Never say another it. word about it. So, no, there was And there I was think nothing. they were doing it to be respectful, and if we talk about it, it's just going to be upsetting, but it would have been nice to talk about it, but right. nobody wanted to talk about it, so... Was that a, a, a family cultural thing? Do you Have you experienced that in just as a Mormon cultural thing or a, a religious cultural thing? I think it is. I think it's definitely a family thing with my family. If is there anything uncomfortable, let's just not talk about it and it'll go away. I do also think it's a Mormon thing. It's just, let's just not talk about it. We'll pray for them. We'll put their name in the temple. That's how we'll help them and everything will work out. But talking about it, it's either going to be upsetting. It's going to make it worse so dwell, let's dwell on the positive. Yeah, or they're dwelling on the negative. We need to dwell on the positive. Be joyful. Be happy. So I'm um, sure there are people that that's not that that are sensitive, and that I've heard other people say that there are people that have been supportive and loving and helpful. But sure, we, yeah, we have been in many wards and been through these same experiences in those wards, and I don't think we've ever had anybody ever no. say anything, offer support of any kind emotional, caring, doing, saying anything about it. It was just a taboo subject. We were completely ignored through all of this. So you finally have a baby. Mm -hmm. So what was that like and how did people respond? Well, when she got pregnant and and actually kept, she got past enough months to say this. Yeah, we didn't tell anybody except our family until I was like five five. months. 
So. Yeah, it, we belonged all of a sudden. You know, the the way we were treated dramatically changed. She was part of the club because Amy was not part of the club before. She would attend all the time. We always went, but it was like she worked. And young mothers don't, in my experience, do not tend to treat working women <laughs> that's her, their age that are working and not having kids terribly well. Um, she was not, I mean, you weren't invited, included hardly anything that I, I mean other than we went to church or ward parties that everybody was invited to she wasn't yeah. invited to the little club things to get together and part of that was just and it was you know it, it wasn't like i dwelt on it and it was you know made me sad all the time you kind of understood you're like well i don't have a lot in common with these women who are home with lots of little kids i am doing something completely different so it kind of seemed okay in my mind, but it was hard. It was still difficult. So I'm sitting here thinking about my own situation and, you know, kind of going through a little bit of self-awareness right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what, what do you do? And, and I mean, we are this big church organization that is all about family. And I'm realizing that is really wonderful for a large group of people and really hard for a small group of people. Absolutely. And oh, how do we get the the majority to understand and care about the minority? Well, we, we were not, I mean, I, I would remember, and we always, we went to church all the time. We were very active. We had callings and stuff the whole time. But I remember somebody new would come into a ward, let's say, and they would get up in testimony meeting and say, oh, my gosh, we love this ward. You've been so welcoming. Um, I can't believe how many people have invited us over for dinner, things like that. I'd be like, nobody's ever, ever invited us over for dinner. And I think a lot of that's just like we didn't match. You know, you look and you say, oh, well, they have kids about the same ages. Well, they don't have kids. What are we going to – maybe they don't like kids. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking, but – we had no social relationships with anybody. We we never felt like we were included at all, especially with the people our age, because we just had no friends at all. Uh, and we didn't. And that's partly. I mean, maybe we're not outgoing enough. We could have invited. No, people I over. I really am sitting here a little bit shocked because I feel like we've known each other a very short period of time, but really easy to talk to you. We, we were always shocked too. <laughs> no, but we thought, I, aren't we nice people? Having, We've said that so many times. No, and I'm also having a real reflective moment because I'm wondering how many people I've encountered in my own wards looking back that weren't like me. And so I kind of, you know what I mean? I didn't oh, yeah. gravitate to them because they didn't have children or I didn't. I'm I'm just sitting here going through like oh, oh my yeah. gosh how many people have I neglected culturally and socially because they didn't quote unquote have something in common with me. Well, and I think we're we teach our youth all the way from primary on up to be a certain way, a certain you know type of Mormon, and I think you know I remember as a little girl, and me and Jeff have talked about it. It's like your life needs to follow this certain path. And everybody is taught, you know, is taught that. It's drilled into them from the time that they are old enough to speak till, you know, their whole lives. And I think if the church and people, members talked about it more with youth, with, you know, the older generation as well about not everybody's going to have this life, this kind of um, stereotypical Mormon life where all these steps kind of fall in place and that's okay and we need to and I think if we talked about it more then people would be more aware of the people that may not fit because I always thought as a child I fit just fine and it wasn't until later where things kind of started to go off the path that I realized and then we found, I think it's like Jeff said, when you get older, you realize, okay, not everybody's perfect. Not all these families are perfect. And you start realizing that it's not this, you know, happily ever after story that you feel like you've been taught your whole youth. And I feel like if it was talked about more, I think more people would 
look outside that box and realize that not everybody has this same unique, you know, or specific stereotype life that I feel like the Mormon culture creates. I'm really interested right now in, and also involving God. I've kind of realized that along with that cultural idea that, that if you do everything right and you obey the commandments and you, you know, we always hear you'll be happy. If you obey the commandments, you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. And I think we do have ideas about what happiness looks like. So we kind of put God in that box as well. So I think it's interesting, Amy, that you talked about, you felt really confident to make your own decisions and you just assume that God was right there with you. But as soon as it started to not be happy, mm -hmm. that you felt God was punishing you. How did your views of God start to evolve? And then when you had a baby, were you back in his good graces? You know, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, one thing to say on the on the last part that I thought of is I feel like there's the church, you know, as a whole, and then there's the club. I feel like there's two very different things, and I think most people don't know the club exists. Because they're uh, in the club. Because they're in the club. <laughs> you only but, know it exists if you're not in the club. when you're not in the club, you clearly see the club. And uh, I've, it's been in every ward. And I'm not calling, I'm not saying this as a judgment. I'm not saying people mean this. But you gravitate to who you're like. Most people are lots of kids, they have them young, and they all fit neatly into this club together. They do everything together, they experience, and it's a joyous, wonderful, supportive, I mean, they have, they have all that that's so beautiful that I grew up with because I was in the club and she was when we were younger. Our families were in that. And we, were, we have regularly been the only couple like us in our wards, the only one with no kids, at our age, and the only one that had one kid, and yeah, you don't who, know who many are, Mormons. Who do we one gravitate kid. to? Who are we like, and who are who? So anyway, but going back to the other concept um, with God, I think I never, I guess, blamed God. I think I felt like we were maybe out of His grace because I was always taught, and it even clearly states in my patriarchal blessing that. I will come to learn through my life that God's hand is in everything. And that it even says something like, that I'll, as I come to know this fully, that I'll testify of it to everybody. I'll, I'll learn this concept that his, he's involved with everything. So I mean, to me, it's everything, every little thing that happens in my life. So how do I reconcile that with, why are you not letting us have kids when we have no physical problems? We're trying. Uh, this is what you want from us. This is what we desperately want more than anything. There's yeah. no medical reason that any doctor can find. She should be able to have kids and there should be no problem. And we, we don't, we don't, we don't. So then you naturally flip to, okay, it's a trial. God gives us trials. This is his choice again to give us our specially packaged uh, trial set of life to make us who we are, are supposed to become. To, to give us the trial by fire. And the, we're going to, we're, you know, I guess I used to think, man, we're, we must have great things in store for us. Uh, by going through all these hard things, we're, we're going to learn all this stuff and be leaders in the church or something that can be so empathetic and sympathetic or something. But again, it's all, he's very involved from my upbringing and from my testimony. He's involved in all of this. So this is his will uh, that he wants us to not have kids. And, and reconciling that was really hard. Why would he not want us to have kids as, as we got older and older? And then when we had her, I, I thought, okay, we went through our trial. What, and we always, through all of this, we would constantly talk, okay, what are we learning about this? Let's keep positive. What can we learn? What can we, and learning to be more sympathetic to others like us or whatever. Yeah, I don't think we ever it. felt like mad at God. It was more like, what did we do wrong and what can we do to fix it? And, you know, I How felt the same better? way, Jeff. Maybe it's to make us more empathetic and to help other people. But it was all us. It wasn't, oh. God, why are you doing this to me? You're that's this is a horrible thing, and we were never like I never felt angry with him. No, it was more like a blame on myself, okay. or it's my fault, or I need to learn something, or whatever. So, did you have any friends or any support? Uh, uh, did you search out 
people that were having fertility issues or that were going through the same thing? We never found anybody. We didn't know anybody. In any ward we were in, there was nobody like us. No. Wow. We didn't know anybody. The only friends we had were college roommates that knew us from before. But they, we would go visit them in Seattle. They had kids, and they would. But they, we were so good friends with them. We'd visit them a few times. But we didn't really have. We didn't anybody. have any friends. Once they all started having kids, it was. It kind of just that makes a separation when you don't have kids and they have kids. I think it's just a natural rift that happens. Nothing against either party on that. It just happens. So. And people know our names at church and say hi to us and be friendly, and we would see them on Sunday, and that was it. Come the of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Yeah.